Listening Dog Media. Rocket with Kieran Bracken and Nick Easter. The Rugby Podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously. Hi, it's Kieran Bracken and Nick Easter on Rocket. Today we're joined by the legendary footballer John Barnes. Rocket with Kieran Bracken and Nick Easter. Listen, this week has been a very, um, a very hostile week with the uh, Black Lives Matter movement um, and demonstrations all around the world. And it, it, it was an opportunity, I suppose, for us to study our own games. A lot talked about football. Uh, Gareth Southgate saying, you know, he, did, he probably only got the job because he was white. If he was black, he would never get an opp- opportunity. And 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 when I realised uh, Maggie Alfonsi, who's now on the council, the you know the first woman black black member on the council um, ever, we are behind the times in rugby. And you quite quite interestingly did a study on you know the um, the representation. Of, of the BAME community in rugby by looking at all of the this, the backroom staff of, of all the premiership teams and uh, you, you've come up with some of your own stats. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, well, I just thought in preparation, look, and a lot of the websites don't, I mean, they give all the information to the players and all that sort of stuff, but uh, you, you can't really check out some of the backroom staff, but uh, you can with the coaches and players. And, you know, player representation in the premiership, um, of the 13s, I included Newcastle, um, yeah. you know, was, a, you know, a black or a person of colour was 18.3%, you know, so sort of just, un- just right. under one in five, were, uh, you know, representative of, the, you know, the sort of ethnicity of, of player in the premiership. Uh, and if you take the sort of 2011 consensus, which is, you know, I know a long time ago, until they do one next year, we won't really know in terms of the countries. Um, balance of uh, diversity, um, but 3.4% um, of the country's uh, ethnicity was was black of African American origin. Yeah. Um, and but but coaching, so you know that, you know we we know you know there's some good athletes around there, but coaches there was only there's only two out of 65, two out of 65, and one of them was Pat Lamb at um, Bristol. Uh, Bristol, and one of them is Joe Shaw at. Uh, uh, Saracens, your club, Saracens. Yeah. Um, look, and this is just, you know, from my, myself looking on it, I, but I'm pretty sure, you know, I was quite thorough. Um, I didn't miss anyone out. And that that comes down to sort of 3% of coaches. And I know it's not a numbers game. It shouldn't be a numbers game. It should be done, done on merit. But uh, mm. interestingly, um, you know, there's a big disparity, isn't there, in the number of players who then might want to go on to coach because – you know, coaching is a very niche, particular skill. Um, you know, it requires not only the knowledge, but also the sort of personal ability, the emotional ability, and how you deal with things under pressure as well. A lot that players have to deal with. And I know the, you know, the number of players amongst the Premiership in England uh, have increased, um, those from a you know, person of colour or black origin. Uh, but I'd be very sad if that wasn't reflected from a sort of coaching or backroom staff as well. I mean, if you look at the backroom yeah. staff, if you look at the backroom staff with the exception of one club, I won't name them, who, who had quite good representation. And this isn't a slur on anyone at all. It's just fact is that there was, there were only, there were only two um, that, that I could see on the websites. Uh, yeah. I mean, you, you had, um, you had uh, Colin Osborne at, uh, at Harlequins, who was the skills coach. 
and I, I, I read a couple of articles about him and what he, he was saying. And yes, he got, you know, he got the job at, at Quinn's while you were there as skills coach. But actually, the progression was very, very limited. And he, he said he never got the opportunity to, to coach at senior level, you know, despite the fact that he had some success at, at Harlequins. And, and it's just interesting. And Paul Hull was, I think, the only other uh, player who was director of rugby at Bristol for some time. But again, you know, there's a lot, lots talked about it. There's certainly not the representation at coaching level, definitely not at council level. And it's great to see Maggie, who's now now been elected, and we hope she'll become president and make some changes. But it's interesting, you know, some people have said to me, well, is it possibly because that, uh, say, uh, players, uh, you know, of, of, of colour don't necessarily play in positions that, of players that end up becoming coaches. So, you, you know, you rare, rarely see a, a nine and a 10 and a hooker. Um, so you rarely see a black, a black nine and 10 and, and hooker. And actually they, they tend stereotypically end up being, whether it be a prop or they end up being on the wing because they're fast and being stereotyped and pushed into those positions. And then someone said, well, actually maybe those people don't tend to become coaches. And I don't know what, what where the truth is, but there's certainly a lack of, I guess, uh, trust. I, mean, there, I think there is a, there is a lack of diversity, and uh, yeah, you know, that, that, that's just a simple fact. As I said, so you know, as, as we mentioned, coaching, you know, is probably you know slightly different, but you know, from the sort of backroom staff, you like. So you're talking about management, you're talking about kit yeah. man, you're talking about physios, masseuses, analysts, S and C, strength and conditioning, all that sort of stuff. Um, as I say, didn't have access to all the clubs, but. Um, now, there was uh, there was one of sort of black black origin um, outside outside of one particular club who had um, you know a stronger representation if you like but look um, you know hopefully, hopefully you know you'd that like to see a change there but ultimately mate it's not about just sticking people into positions I think it's just about the opportunity it's always about opportunity it's not about you know mm-hmm. you, you want the best people there because uh, you know you want the best people who are whose skill set suits that as best as possible. And, you know, they're going to grow the club, the individual, the game, whatever it might be, or, you know, whatever business you're in, you know, and that's how they're going to thrive and that's how they're going to, you know, invest in the future. But it's having yes. the opportunity, isn't it? It's having the opportunity to interview and mm-hmm. to put forward your case. And we don't know. We're never in the interview rooms at the RFU or at different clubs or whatever it might be. But if you go by what Colin yeah. Osborne was saying, he says he never, he never got, what did you say? He said in this piece, I didn't read it, but, yeah, he just never he he never got he never even got a, as far as an interview with any other club for anything. Yeah. He basically never got the opportunity and never got asked. And I don't know. And, he, and he's an exper- he's an experienced coach. He coached Zimbabwe at the World Cup in two, in eighty seven. Um, he coached around the world. He was part you know a big part in terms of the talent mm-hmm. spotting at Quinns. Then he became backs coach at Quinns. Then he's on the senior staff. You know, he's got a wealth of experience as well at different levels. Um, so Why, that, did he get, did he leave? How did he leave? How did he leave? Was he asked to leave? Was he? Yeah, he was. Um, you know, he he he, he left um, when Guzzy came in 2018, and uh, right. you know, he's helping out my club now. You know, got him down to Wimbledon. Oh, last great! Year. You know, because right. I, well, I got him down to Wimbledon last year, and you know that to be honest, great. they probably would have well, they would have got promoted if it wasn't for uh, COVID as well. Uh, because uh, uh, I think yeah. all, I mean, all look, the leads, I know. I know. I know the Premiership are, are, are doing a lot with trying to get um, rugby into, you know, inner city with Project Rugby and the all schools and stuff. But as far as coaching is concerned, it would be great if Maggie 
when she does get elected as, as president of the RFU in the not too distant future, that you know she can try and apply pressure and make change. I think that's really important. But one person who's been very vocal about this and has talked very eloquently um, has kindly agreed to come on our show is a hero of mine, played for Liverpool, best team in the world, going to win the league, uh, in John Barnes. So great to have John John on the line now. Karen, is that you? Yeah, how you doing, John? You're, you're, you're one of my idols, so excuse me for being giddy and so excited. Because, yeah, but before um, you start, Karen, before you start, yeah, before you start, people say that to me all the time and they pretend they're like much younger than me. And you used to say when you were at school, you used to watch me when you were a young kid. You're my age, so don't give me all that. No, come on, listen. <laughs> Oh, when Kieran, Kieran, you. Take, take your cap off, mate. Your grandma used to fancy me as well. Forget all that. Yeah, take my cap off. Look at the start right, of me take now. Take your cap off. There we go. That's your true oh. age, mate. That's your true In fact, age. I remember being at school and watching you play. Oh, no, come on. That can't be true. I went to a rugby true. school, Kieran. 1977. I came, to, I came to England in 1976. 77, I went to watch England versus France. 7-6 at Twickenham. Jean-Pierre, yeah. Reeve, and all of them were playing. I'm sure you were on the bench. I'm not sure. 77. Oh, my God. You know, that's a different era. I asked, that's the Will Carl you say? That is brilliant. But um, thanks for coming on the show. It's uh, it's great to have oh, you. Well, and man. and I was talking to Nick earlier. We were talking about which teams we support. And he, he said, I was I was a plastic Liverpoolian. I grew up in Liverpool. But he had a great story about the first time... Where in Liverpool you play, did you grow I, I mate, well, just Rainhill. I went to St. Edward's College in West Derby. St. Eddie's. St. Eddie's, yeah. My sons used to play against St. Eddie's. They went to Birkenhead School. So they played oh, against Oh, the posh one. The really, really posh yeah. one. <laughs> what about um, 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 St. Anselm's? You would have played against St. Anselm's. Yeah, I played all, all, against all of them everywhere. So, But I ended up going to a nice boarding school at the age of 14. It really hit me hard. I didn't know what happened, but... Um, but yeah, but thanks for coming on the show. But Nick, tell, tell us your story about when you first saw John play live. Yeah, so obviously I'm a lot younger than you two. Um, <laughs> as, 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 as you can tell, mate, as you can tell. I first saw you, obviously, you know, watched you World Cup 1990, the rap, all of that sort of stuff without wanting to blow smoke up your ass. But I, my first team I supported at school, I was unsure. I lived, I lived in Dulwich, right near Crystal Palace. So Crystal Palace was the local side. Liverpool were the, the best side. I didn't want to be a glory hunter. I didn't quite have the love for Palace. I, who do you support to my old man? And my old man. Millwall. No, 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 no. It wasn't Millwall, mate. So for some reason, him and his dad, my granddad, supported Leeds. And I was like, Leeds? Okay. Where? I didn't even know where it was. I was so young. So I said, anyway, I'm supporting Leeds now. I said, you've got to take me to a game. And he took me to a game. And it was, I remember, it's April 91. At Ellen Road, you look, you probably don't remember the game because you played. Was it five four? That's the one. You set up to score two. You boys were four nil up at half time. I said to Dad, I said to my dad, I said, I think I've supported the wrong side here when I made my decision at the beginning because it was the beginning of that season. I made my decision. Yeah, I remember they came and, back, uh, though, didn't they? And then Leeds came back, mate, and we didn't win it. It was five four, but what a game! And from I then on, I, I was Lee Chapman scored a hat trick if, if I'm not mistaken. He did. He did. Jaffers, yep. The clumsy one, as it usually was with him. I know, yeah. But um, did you play against um, Kieran? Are you yeah. a similar age to Austin Healy? Yeah, so I was competing with him for so years. So did you He's play against Everton him fan. when he went to St. Anselm's? Because, you know, he went uh, to St. Anselm's. No, well, no. I, well, when I was at St. Edward's, they didn't play rugby up to the age of, I think they started like 14, 15. So when I All left. Right, okay. But yeah. but listen, he, he went to St. Anselm's. Oh, right, yeah. So I compete with Austin for many, many years. I'm, I'm just looking at... You're 56, aren't you? So you're eight years older than me. 
<laughs> well, I don't know about just, eight. I think you sound well, like one of them Nigerian footballers. I love it. Now, listen, it's great to have her on the show. And um, listen, I, I've you know I've seen you over the last six months, year or last few years, talking very passionately about Black Lives Matter. And I thought it'd be a great opportunity because it kind of feels, I feel very, I suppose, uneducated, uncomfortable talking about it. Myself and Nick coming from very privileged white backgrounds and trying mm. to analyse what's happening. But I love listening to you talk about, you know, the the the, the death um, of George Floyd was his visible face of racism. But actually, that's not the problem. The problem is the, yeah. I suppose, the systemic sort of underprivileged, uneducated housing opportunities for, yeah. uh, you know, people from BAME background. And what I found really yeah. interesting is, is your take on it. Well, actually, you know, it's, it's actually more than just having a black coach or a black manager. And looking yeah. at rugby, it's quite embarrassing to see for the first time, Maggie Alfonso, the female rugby player, black woman, first, I think, woman on the board, first uh, black person on the board ever. And it yeah. kind of fit. And then you look at the representation in the final of the mm. 2019 World Cup, where there were 11 players, whereas in, in 2003, there's only one. And I know we're trying to do our best, but you look at football, you look at rugby, and actually yeah. the op opportunities just aren't there, are they? The opportunities aren't there, but I'll tell you the interesting thing for me. Um, I used to work in South Africa for eight years um, on super sport. Um, I used to go there one week every month. And I went there first in 1994 when the, ha the changeover happened with Mandela. People have this, you know, talking about what a great place South Africa is now. And of course it is. It is a great place. But if you remember, 1995, South Africa won the World Cup. Yeah. I was there. Yeah. I was in it. Yeah. 95. Chester Williams. Yeah. Yeah. And then they yeah, said, what a great day for South Africa. Great day for yeah. South Africa. They're a black player. 2007. They won the World Cup again, the Rugby World Cup. Yeah, they had yeah. seven or eight black players on the team, and I think things are getting better because you got seven or eight black players on the team. Then 2019, 12 years later, so look out for 2031. But 2019, they wanted to get with a black captain, and they said, "How far has South Africa come?" Because they've got a yeah. black captain. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. go to Joburg regularly. Nothing has changed in terms of really? in terms of the normal people, the average person still being poor, still not getting any education. You have a certain group of elite people who is changed for, and for rugby players in South Africa is changed for. They've got a black rugby captain, but nothing change, changes for the people in the city, the inner cities. And the same thing's happening here, because what we can do is give a black man a job as a manager, a rugby manager, a rugby coach, a chief executive. But what's changing for the communities? And that's really my point. Yeah. You can mm. always elevate people out of blackness. I call it elevating out of blackness, where we change our perception of a brilliant black man to make him a CEO for Obama, for you know, a black John Barnes to become a manager. But until we change our perception of the average black man in the street, nothing will change. So mm. um, when you have these visible, it's called the, 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 these visible representation of us moving forward, because then all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the CEO of the rugby RFU is going to be black. But is that changing anything for the black kids in the inner cities? And that's what we have to change. That's what we have to change. So that is why mm. we're on a bit of a crossroads now, and it's quite dangerous because, of course, once we then see these visible representations of black people making it, albeit mm. elite black people, we then all of a sudden feel that, well, there's not a problem because the police are stopped, stopped killing people. Yeah. Um, you have uh, a black football manager. Yeah. And you've got black CEOs in companies, but nothing changes in the inner cities. And that's, that's really what we have to change. Now, the difference between rugby and football, I suppose, when you want to look at the problems that football has over rugby, is that first of all, there's a different demographic demographic of, of rugby fan. 
And also, the nature of a rugby fan is different to the nature of a football fan. Mm. The people, they're, they're, they're members of society. Now, when I go to rugby matches, I used to go and watch, I went to a rugby school. Um, I played till I was 15 for, for, for um, London schools at centre. I was a centre until oh, I was 16. When it comes to 16, they're real rugby players. Foot. I could run. I could pass. I came from Jamaica, so I've got good movement, but I'm not prepared to get a broken nose. And, you know, when it gets to 16, 17, <laughs> if you're not prepared to do that, you're not a rugby player. <laughs> However, I then, if you look at the, the difference between the fans is that rug, football fans abuse the opposition. I'm not talking about racially. Forget racially. They're not about players playing. Football fans abuse the opposition. They abuse the other fans. There's that animosity towards each other. Mm. In rugby, rugby fans support their team. Mm. Yeah? So mm. maybe they then may not like the opposition, but it doesn't either get to the stage whereby you're going to, I'm not talking about racially, I'm talking about even abusing them en masse to abuse the opposition when they get the ball in confrontation. So so when, as much as you talk about a different demographic, the nature of the sport's different. In many respects, I always say that if, if it, it, it's the other way around in football. You know, the aggression is off the pitch in football by the fans fighting each other and on the, on the field. Yeah, but it's not that bad. Whereas in rugby, all the aggression is on the field where people are fighting each other. And off the field, the fans have a, have a, a bit of a banter with each other, but it's not that aggress- aggressive. So to compare the two, I don't think it's necessarily, you know, you can't, you can't look and learn from each other because the football fan is never going to change that, that situation because as much as people talk about your job is to support your club, your job also as a football fan, subconsciously, unconsciously, is, and once again, I'm not talking about racially abusing, but your job is to abuse the opposition. You can hear the mm. abuse that goes on. And if there are no black players, it's not going to be racial abuse, but it's still going to be abuse. So I suppose that's the difference. Yeah, just going back to your, I mean, very valid point, John. I spent the last 18 months in South Africa and, you know, we, I was coaching a side and we played uh, up in Pretoria and Joburg, you know, the stadium there. And it's got worse, actually. Mm. It's, got, it's got worse, the sort of yeah. poverty. And as you say, you know, you've got the elite and upper echelons of power, you know, siphoning money off here, there and everywhere and looking after themselves nicely. But, uh, you know, it's systemic in, cer- in certain areas. But do you not think there is an opportunity, though, when you do have, you know, a person of colour or a black person in power in an inspirational position to be able to inspire a group? Because it's a little bit like, if you take sport, you know, with sports podcast, when England won the World Cup in 2003, you know, when England do well in football, how that inspires people to take up the game. Um, you know, even if you can get a small percentage of mm. the sort of the ethnic minority changing the way they are or changing their behaviours yeah. or following a different path, it can still have a tiny effect. Not, not the massive effect and change we want to impart, yeah. but it can still have a bit of an effect, do you not think? Well, absolutely. It can inspire people. But I think differently to a few people on this respect because I don't, I don't like the idea of black sporting role models as opposed to black businesses, black educationists, black doctors, black lawyers. And I'll tell you why. Because the narrative is we can run fast, we can box, we can fight. So if we then become boxers and, and footballers and, 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 and rugby players before we begin strong, what we have to change is the perception of our intellect and our morality. So I'm after the equality, intellectual and, and, and morally. Because, of course, you know, if, if we have all, all of the boxers, for example, in every, in every weight category, we are the world champions. People say yeah, black people can box anyway. Black people can fight. We have to change the perception of can we think. So unfortunately, I think that that is why I'm going down the other route of looking for more role models. Secondly, the problem you have from that point of view, when you have a president of the United States, a black CEO, a black chief executive, we're talking about inspiring kids and it does inspire kids. But... If we then say to the kids, yes, you can actually make it because look at Obama, look at somebody who's a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. You can do that. They'll say, well, where I live, 
I'm going to be expelled from school by the time I'm 14. So as much as we have these, these visible representations of success, if we're not going to create a platform in the inner cities for us to even get a decent education, decent housing, decent jobs, how can we then go from there to becoming the president of, 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 the, of the prime minister of England or Fortune 500 company? What we have to do is create a platform down there for them to be able to do it. Because the narrative always has been when black people, black elite, black businessmen, let them achieve something and then they'll help people up the ladder. What I say is let's create a platform down below whereby they can climb up the ladder themselves. Because a lot of black people would have also come from those deprived areas, those areas which have been disenfranchised, but they have got to where they've got to despite the environment. Mm. So to then say that you can all do it, no, you can't all do it. Whereas if we were to create an environment down below whereby they're able to get the same education, the same housing, same jobs, then I think that, that you'll then get more regardless regardless of, 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 of whether they're better or not. Because in many respects, you always the old adage was you have to be better than a white person to get a similar opportunity. And that's still happening. Because you see a lot of the people in these positions have been brilliant. Now, we don't want them, everybody to have to be brilliant to get there because that's not reality. Everybody's not going to be brilliant. But everybody has to be given the equal opportunity. We don't yeah. want equality. You'll never have equality. You're going yeah. to start from a class system. You're going to have you know, disparages in, in wealth, in, 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 in class. In, in the fact that in the inner cities, lots of white kids aren't gonna, are, are disenfranchised. But we want an equality in terms of the opportunity that's presented, not equality yeah. itself. I mean, there are, there, are, um, there are projects now in rugby. They've got Project Rugby where they're going into the inner city. They've got all schools as well. So they're getting these kids who would never play rugby to actually, to actually take up the game because people think it's a white man's game. I mean, I, mm. I, I, saw, I saw racism at a very basic level when I was very, very young, I was born in Ireland, all my family are Irish, came to Liverpool when I was two or three, and my parents, their parents had had their own pub in Ireland, and when they came to Liverpool, it was like no blacks, no Irish, and yeah. there was a real chip on the shoulder, it was like us against them, but I think yeah. what you're saying is, it really resonates with me, because what you're saying is, it's all very well to, to, to have someone at the top, but it needs to start at the bottom. Because if you have a black captain, if you had a black president, you know, actually things get ignored. And as you've said in South Africa, you know, everyone's saying, isn't it great? Black captain won the World Cup, but actually nothing's changed. If anything's got worse. So how yeah. do we, and, and interesting, there's a, there's a black coach at, uh, was at Harlequins who, um, who got me to come and work at Harlequins and read a really interesting article. He never got offered any jobs in rugby outside just the skills coaching at Harlequins, even though he was very successful. And he did say, yeah. actually, everyone thinks it's, this, it's the problem of, of, of the black person's problem, of the ethnic minority. But actually, it's not their problem. It's the white man's problem. They've got to work out how to resolve this. And you're giving the answer whereby we, they have to, we have to do something at gra grassroots level to give people opportunities so that we have the perception that everyone's equal. But of course, in rugby or sports generally, I think that it's much more inclusive than, 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 and unfortunately, what happens is all the rest of society absolves the sense of responsibility because we just point the finger at football, rugby, then our coaches, and, 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 and other, um, uh, the, the entertainment industry. Yes, with lots of entertainers, but no one at the, in, in, uh, you know, in the administrative level. Whereas for 99% of, of the black community, they're not going to be footballers, they're not going to be singers, they're not going to be rugby players. So what happens to them? So what we have to do is we have to change the perception of them. Not change the perception of a John Barnes or of a, a Rio Ferdinand or of a Itoji, because of course we have made it and we have, you know, been fairly good at what we do. We have to change our perception of the average person. That's what we have to do. And unfortunately, we then believe that as long as we see these visible representations of success, 
not only that will that inspire the next black generation, and if you're a girl, that's not going to inspire you because you're not going to be a rugby player or footballer in terms of, obviously, they have to be female rugby and female football. So what about the rest of, of society? How are we going to help them? And what I say is that for the black elite and the black leaders, we have to stop. I've watched the Black Lives Matter movement. And all I'm hearing now for the Black, Black, Black Lives Matter movement, we need more black football managers, black football administrators, black coaches, yeah. Um, yeah. black um, actors, people on television which is probably five, less than 5% of the black community. No one's talking about better education, better housing, better schools. And once we get that right, whereby we've changed the perception of those people, they will be able yeah. to elevate themselves into positions at, where they should be. We're not just saying that if you elevate, if, if, if you change that environment, they're all going to be doctors and lawyers and, and footballers. But what they will do is they'll be like the average white person. And that's what they want. And then the yeah. ones who are brilliant enough to become a, I don't know, a, a president or a prime minister or a doctor or a lawyer or a CEO, that will automatically happen. But we're letting those people down by not speaking about them, not speaking about them. You know, when I see that, you know, Raheem Sterling, for example, said that he'll know things um, are serious and will change when he sees a black CEO in a, in a football club. I say I know things have changed when I see black kids in the inner cities getting a better education and, and better housing and better, you know, job opportunities. That for me is the most important thing. And what underpins that for me is this whole idea when you talk about Black Lives Matter and then the, 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 the counter-argument to that is all lives matter and all lives do matter. However, mm -hmm. there's one which is more pressing and more urgent now. We know all lives matter, but there's one that's more pressing now is the Black Lives Matter movement while accepting and acknowledging all lives matter. So when as the black leaders we say it's important to have black CEOs and, and, and black managers and, and you know, black people getting Oscars and, and Emmys. And I say, yes, but the inner cities, are, they also need to be addressed and we need more back to schools and education and housing. They say, you have to do both. And I'm going, yes, you have to do both. But there is one that is more urgent and more pressing now. So John, just regards, you know, looking deeper down at the sort of bottom in, the, in, the, in society, the roots in society. First question is, you know, you came over here, what, were you 12 when you moved over here? Yeah. yeah just, just ask the question about how, if you think that's changed and in, in what way it's changed. And, you know, secondly, you know, you, you read about it in the news and you talk about what Raheem Sterling says, but on the sort of the, the other side, but you have Marcus Rashford, who's probably doing much more of what you talk about when he's raising 20 million you know, to help get free, the, the free meals, um, which, you know, he obviously relates a story to when his mum was working on the minimum wage, that it was just enough to bring them dinner, but, but not lunch, you know, um, yeah. throughout the day. and. You know, someone like that is very, very inspiring. And, and that goes to more to what you're talking about in terms of achieving what you can. But, you know, just the first part of my question, you know, you've been here since, what, 1975? 76. 76. Yeah. Um, you know, has there been positive change and negative change? There's not much really changed? Is it? <coughs> well, there's obviously, there's been a visible change since I've come to England from Jamaica as a 12-year-old boy. Um, in terms of more black people being on television, black people being in positions of power, but nothing much has changed for the inner cities. Yeah. And that's, and, 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 and that's the real thing. And I'm a middle-class Jamaican. My dad came, he went to Sandhurst with Camilla Parker Bowles, his husband, he was, you know, Andrew Parker Bowles. My, son, my dad's an army officer and he was Sandhurst military attache. So I'm a middle-class Jamaican. I used to live in Highgate in, 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 and in, in, we lived in Mayfair. So obviously it was, a, it was a, a, a diplomatic posting. So we had nice houses. I went to a, a grammar school. But all my friends, because I played football and that's a working class sport, were from the inner cities. So I understood from an early age, forget about my life and what happened to me. I saw my friends in terms of the way they were stopped by police. So all of this went on. All of this went on. But, you know, I, 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 and now it's interesting because right at the start you mentioned white privilege. 
a lot of white people get very scared. Well, not scared. They get very defensive when you say white privilege because they're assuming that you're saying they didn't get their job on merit. And unfortunately, the narrative is putting it at the top end of white privilege where you're looking at these people who have been um, given an advantage either from a job or whatever. But I prefer to say rather how, how, how we can stop people getting defensive about white privilege is we, what we have to do, which I'm about to say now. When I talk about white privilege, I'm not talking about you being given an advantage or a job or you don't deserve what you did because you know, you're not better than anybody else. White privilege is when you walk down the street, does a woman grip her handbag and cross the road when she comes to you? When you walk into a shop, does the shopkeeper look at you as if you're going to steal anything? No. Yeah. And why? White people say, that's not white privilege, that's normal. And I'd say, yes, it's normal to you, but it's not normal to 90% of black people because this is what happens. So when you explain white privilege like that, people then don't have to be defensive. Now, me as John Barnes, I have experienced white privilege because I'm John Barnes' superstar footballer. So when I walk into shops, people open the door for me because I'm John Barnes' mm. footballer, not because yeah. I'm a black man. Yeah. When yeah. I go to a bar or a club, I go to the VIP section. Now, if I wasn't a footballer, that wouldn't happen. So white privilege is not personal to... to, to in fact, a lot of black people go through white privilege. It's, if they are the elite, there are actors and black and footballers. So that is what white privilege is. It's not, it's not a personal thing against white people. So therefore, I think that if you explain it that way, then people won't be as defensive when you talk about white privilege. I didn't experience racism, John Barnes. John Barnes experienced racist incidents. And there's a difference between a racist incident and racism. Racist incidents happen at a football match where a banana comes on the field and you get racial abuse. That's on a Saturday for 10 minutes um, in a match. Saturday night, after the game, when I got in my car and drove out, people were waving at me and cheering me. When I went to a restaurant, when I went to a bar, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, people were opening the door for me. That's not racism. Then on Saturday, a racist event happened. A banana came on the field. Racism happens every single day to black people in the inner cities, whereby as soon as they wake up and they leave their houses through systemic unconscious, more often than not, racism, whereby the jobs they have, the houses they live in, the fact that they can't get jobs, the education their kids get, that is racism. Racist incidents is what happens to elite people. A black man can't get an Oscar, so when he goes to the Oscar ceremony, he may not get an Oscar or get passed over. That's a racist incident. For the other three months until something else happens, he's acting, he's getting paid like everybody else. So we have to tackle racism and stop focusing on racist incidents. Because the more we focus just on racist incidents, what happens is we look at the incident, we all get outraged, say it's terrible, and then if that incident doesn't happen again for six months, we forget about it because it doesn't exist. But it exists for people in the inner cities. So that is why, as much as I'm a big supporter of the George Floyd thing and the fact that, you know, bananas come on the field, if we keep focusing on that rather than the bigger problem, we'll convince ourselves that it doesn't exist when all of a sudden it's not there anymore. And this is a dangerous time because what will happen is if the police stop killing black people, a black manager gets a job, um, there's no more racist abuse at football fans. A banana comes on the field. Society's going to go, we've got rid of racism now. <laughs> yeah? Mm. Whereas every single day, people are still going through that. And then if we then push for more, they're going to say, hang on, come on. We've given you everything you wanted. What more do you want? That's why I'm saying, keep all the statues. Keep all the statues. A black man will still try and get a manager's job and Oscars and stuff like that. But let's sort out the more pressing issue yeah. of disenfranchisement. It, it seems to me that the key to all of this really is education at a young age. Education of of everyone really not just the power that be what you're saying is just just to put a black manager in or a prime minister in that, that's not necessarily the answer 
Um, so it, 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 it's, it's, it's very difficult. And it's the sort of thing that was going to take a long time to sort out. But we need to certainly as, as white folks, we, we, you know, privileged, but we've got to work out how to help that. What is the education we're talking about, though? Because we know the education for the last 400 years in the history of the glorious empire, whereby the Nazis and Stalin, they're all evil. But the British Empire went and civilized everyone and gave them a better life in the countries they, that they colonized. Um, so, of course, if that's the history and that's the education we need, that puts a certain group of people morally and intellectually above another group of people. And they continue to push that. And that is why when we're talking about looking at the statues and why even Pierce Morgan will then say, oh, Colson was terrible because Colson was a slave trader. Let's throw his, his statue in the river. But then all of a sudden, when you want to talk about Winston Churchill or others who are our, when we talk about our I mean, British heroes, you draw yeah. the line there. Because if the truth be told about so many yeah. about other British leaders, this is what yeah. Britain was built on. And that's why I'm saying, forget about this throwing statues and attacking statues of the mm -hmm. past. Yes, we've got to tell the truth about them and be balanced about them. But let's yeah. concentrate on today. I'm, lo I'm loving listening to you. And, um, and I think, you know, it's important that the change is out there. And it's not, it's not the change that I suppose people like myself and Nick think should happen. Oh, let's just black manager. Actually, it's systemic. It's, it's a long-term thing that we've got to learn to improve everyone. Um, but just, just before we, we finished, um, I just want to get your take, if you don't mind, um, just talking about, uh, about Liverpool likely or going to win um, for the, you know, first, the league in 30 years. Uh, you must be really excited because with the thought of actually cancelling the league and the amount of WhatsApp people sending me, they were like, ah, you're not going to win it. I'm devastated. The thought of them <laughs> not winning it after all they've done. But you yeah. must be absolutely chuffed um, oh, absolutely. That, that, that your team, Liverpool, are going to go... Well, I, I say going to, but how, how do you think it's going to play they out? They will, mate. They will. Well, first of all, they are going to win the league. But let me just mention one thing before I get on to this. One yes. thing, going back to the yeah. stuff you're talking about. Amy yeah. Cooper. Do you know Amy Cooper? Amy Cooper was the woman who called the police on that man in Central Park when he had a shadow bog loose. Yeah? Now, Amy Cooper is a white, liberal, Obama-supporting, Trump-hating, left-wing woman who will not consider herself to be racially biased in any way, shape, or form. If that didn't happen six weeks ago, Amy Cooper would be on the front line of the George Floyd matters. So is Amy Cooper different to anybody else? What happens is, in times of stress and times of confrontation, we, all of us, automatically go back to our default position of how we have been conditioned to think of who the enemy is. And that black man at that time became the enemy because of the confrontation. So she unconsciously and went back to what she could do. And she's, a, she's ashamed and embarrassed. So Amy Cooper isn't different to anybody else. Mm. People who are racially biased aren't people who wear pointy hoods and who are, you know, right-wing neo-Nazis who are white supremacists. They're you, they're, there's everybody. This is how we have been conditioned to think. Yeah. And until we all admit it, that this is how we feel, nothing will change. We'll just point the finger at racist football fans, racist people, and feel that we're doing, patting ourselves on the back by saying, it's them and not us. So that's the mm. first thing. Let's get back to proper stuff now. Liverpool winning the league. <laughs> well, <laughs> I would be happy. I would be happy as a, as a, as a, uh, a professional footballer because I'm a football fan, for anybody who has done what that team has done in the last two years, who happens to be Liverpool. Because if a team got 97 points, yeah. got to the Champions League final and lost, losing one game, continued into the next season and losing one game, winning the Champions League final, sorry, winning the final, Champions League final, they deserve it. Yes, they're Liverpool, yeah. so it's our team and I want them to win. But if you think about it rationally, anybody... Nobody can say, hey, they don't deserve it or they shouldn't be given the, or, or, or they shouldn't do it. So this is not a thing. Yes, I'm a Liverpool man. I want them to win. But it's the right thing to do. So when people talk about cancelling the league, I thought, well, why cancel the league? Because there's a situation whereby you can give, have two months off as we've had. 
then you can get back to playing nine games, finishing the league, and it's not about Liverpool. It's about the integrity of the sport, which means yeah. Leeds, Leeds should get promoted. <laughs> The team should get relegated. I'm with you, Barnsley. Yeah. No, but people are talking about, oh, because you want Liverpool to win. I said, no, because if because if Liverpool lose the eight games or the nine games, then they shouldn't. But it's more than that. It's about crew coming up. It's about the bottom teams who are going to get relegated. It's yeah. about the integrity of the sport. Exactly. So that is why I'm delighted that it's happened. More so, yes, it's Liverpool. But if it was Man United who were that clear, I would say you have to play because they deserved it. Now, regardless of whether... And, 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 and the celebrations for me are for the fans. So as much as they're going to say yeah. there's an asterisk before it because there are going to be no fans there. When I when you win the league, it's about the work you put in. It's about the fact that you're 25 points ahead of anybody else. If there's no fans there, that doesn't take away from the fact you are 25 points ahead of everybody else. You have been the best team. So if the fans are going to be disappointed because they're not, they're fine. And it's not going to be a hollow victory. It's not going to be a pairing victory. It's the victory that you have actually deserved. So regardless of whether there's 1,000, 100,000 or 5,000, you have deserved this. So... I know a lot of Man United fans are quite happy that no one's going to be there to celebrate. But from a playing perspective, it wouldn't matter to me at all. And, they, and they, they've done it the right way, as you say. You know, they're probably, arguably the best team, you know, if, if they go on and win it within the next three or four games, you know, at least. Arguably the best team that's ever played, uh, you know, played won the Premier League. Brax, Brax could probably relate to um, winning in front of no fans as well because he did it regularly at uh, Vicarage Road, didn't you, mate? When oh, you shut up. Up. <laughs> not, not for the football team. So, so, not for Mate, that didn't take away any of the enjoyment you got from winning, did it? And having beers with your mates and realising the hard work you put in and everything. Kieran? Yeah, I'm not answering that. He's just full of shit. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, but in terms, the last thing he said there, where he said about the hard work you put in, having beers with your mates, regardless of whether the fans are there or not, exactly. you deserved it and, and you won. You know, the fact that, because there are clubs who may have even more supporters. But the fact is, with all the supporters and the history and the traditions of, I don't know, Leicester or somebody else, you won. And that's the, that, that's yeah. the most important thing. I mean, yeah, you, go I back, you go back to those horrible moments in pre-season especially, don't you? Like, Everything goes through goes through your mind when you you, you know you, over the course of the season you win the league championship, you know the, the obviously the games you pull out of the bag, the moments in games and everything, and and of course you would like the fans who have been a massive part of it to celebrate with you and you to see the enjoyment on their faces, but you know that will happen in time. But uh, as as Barnsley sort of says, and we know Kieran, it's about the the people either side of you and the graft you put in, the challenges you've had to overcome and. You've done yeah, it. I don't. I actually don't remember. People ask me about games I played in ten years with England and ten years with, Sa- uh, with Saracens and three years at Bristol. I don't remember hardly any of the rugby. All I remember is the crack I have with my mates and and the fun and the crack afterwards and the piss taking and the, the you know the, the road trips and the poker games and I just don't really remember much of the rugby. Maybe because I got knocked out so many times. But but actually, it was the, it's the people around you that matter most, isn't it? But that's what contributes to the success. Because although you're not thinking about the success when you've actually won, the fact that crack, the togetherness, the camaraderie, things aren't going when you pull together, that is why you, you, you win. So if you look at, even from Liverpool's perspective, even Liverpool's perspective in the old days, people talk about Russian Dalglish. It was never about Russian Dalglish, in my opinion. It was about yeah. the Sammy Lees and the Jimmy Cases and the other ones, because you're yeah. always going to have superstars who are going to get the glory. You know, I mean, Rob Andrew may have got the glory or Johnny Wilkinson, but it's about the ones, the unsung ones, who, who you will appreciate equally as much. And that's the thing. The camaraderie is not about the superstars sticking together. It's about the whole collective. And that's what Liverpool had before. Mm. That's what they had now under Jurgen Klopp. Forget about Salah and Firmino and Mane. It's about the Hendersons and the Fabinho's and the unsung heroes. And that's what success is all about. And it's a squad effort and tied into that is, you know, a, a training. You know, they, they need to 
they need to test you in training, don't you, to prepare for those big games and big moments as well. I'm not being funny, but I've got a feeling, John, if you actually stuck with rugby with your left foot as well, I reckon you could have been you could have been an, an, an amazing rugby player. Not with his face. I'm not... <laughs> not with his face. I would have been a Rob Andrew. I played centre. I played number 12. Yeah. Listen, I played number 12. I was going to play 13, but 13 is where you really have the ones who, you know, Mike Tindall and people like that. I like the number... <laughs> Listen, the, 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 you know, the scrum halves and the inside centres, we're the, we're the cowards. I don't care what anybody tells me. <laughs> Apart from Johnny. Johnny Wilkinson should have been played there. So. Yeah. No, rugby yeah. wasn't for me. I was too pretty. Uh, <laughs> you, chose, you definitely chose the right sport, mate. That's for sure. <laughs> Listen, thanks for your time today. Very enlightening, very passionate, and uh, um, great points. Forward. Great points. Yeah, very well yeah. balanced. And uh, anytime, gentlemen. And once this falls, once this goes away, you know we'll get back. Please ring me and let's talk more about rugby as well, because I know a little bit about rugby. Must, I, I didn't play football at school when I came to England. I came from wow. England. Dad played football for Jamaica. I grew up playing football. I've come oh, wow. to the home of football. I think I'm going to have a great time. I go to a rugby school. I've only played rugby for four years. <laughs> yeah, that made you the rounded person you are today. Absolutely. Cheers. Thank you, mate. All the best, man, John. Cheers. Thank you, lads. Rocket with Kieran Bracken and Nick Easter. Thanks to John Barnes for joining us. And don't forget, you can watch all our interviews, including Tom Curry, Ian Botham, Eddie Hall, The Beast, and many more. And you can catch us on YouTube. So search up Rocket.